Hello, you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and David Quinn. It's a lonely duo this week. We have no guest. We had somebody lined up, but unfortunately they had to pull out at the last moment and will join us at a future date. But that doesn't matter because it's been a very busy week. Um, it was the week, for example, that the both News Talk and Gripped, my publication, revealed that 5,000 people entered this country last year with no documents whatsoever. Um and were subsequently accommodated and placed in the asylum process. It is the third anniversary of Brexit, and it was the week when the government revealed plans on the St. Bridget's Day bank holiday for the St. Patrick's Day Festival, which is going to be, folks, the wokest St. Patrick's Day we've had yet. David, is your head spinning with all the news? Well, it has been an amazingly busy week, all right, and a very varied week. Uh, so, yeah, kind of spinning, and we'll try to unspin it now on this podcast. Yeah, Um uh, do you know where your passport is? I do, fortunately, yes. Um, uh, um, ready five, to hand. 5,000 5, people entered this country last year not knowing where their passport is. I mean, they had it when they got on the plane because they would have had to have it to get on the plane to arrive into Dublin Airport. They arrived at Dublin Airport and they had mysteriously mislaid it. And the attitude of the Irish authorities when this happens, and of course it's a legal requirement to have a passport if you're traveling internationally, their attitude is, well, that's terribly unfortunate. Um, in you come, into the asylum process you go. Uh, now, from where I'm sitting, um, it just strikes me as a bizarre situation that we are effectively rewarding people for breaking the law We're, and, and, and encouraging people to do it. We are saying, I mean, if you are somebody coming from Brazil, say, and you arrive here with your passport and claim asylum, the government knows where you are, they might, where you're from, they might say, you've no case, go home. But if you're arriving from that country and you destroy your passport, well, then you can claim to be from anywhere. So our policy seems to incentivize people, David, to cross our borders. Well, you see, it's very interesting that, um, as you say, both Crypt and News Talk um, have come across this figure through Freedom of Information. And it's a colossal figure. Um, it's up to 40% of the people who came here last year claiming asylum. Um, and um, amazingly, some of these asylum seekers were very open about talking to a News Talk reporter about this. Um, so I'm just quoting here. Um, so the News Talk reporter says to the asylum seeker, if you come to Dublin Airport and say you have no travel documents, what is your motive in doing that? Um, and so the asylum seeker responds, it is to conceal your identity and prevent the Irish state from coming to a quick decision as to whether or not you're entitled to international protection. So quite open about why they're destroying the documents. Um, because because they, they know that we won't send them back straight away, which is what other countries do. So they know that Ireland is a soft touch. And the word goes out, the French will be tough on you, the Italians will be tough on you, the Danes will be really tough on you, but the Irish won't be. So come along, destroy your passport on the way through, and the Irish will wave you through Dublin Airport. I found right, it out after the pavement. I found it fascinating that Leo Bradker today was uh, sorry. Today is Thursday, by the way. That's when we record. Um, but Leo Bradker today was saying that he said two things. First of all, he was denouncing the people protesting about this, telling them in very haughty terms that they should know better than to be protesting. Which I don't know. The Taoiseach talking down to protesters like that is is as good an advert for populism as I've seen. But secondly, he he's now changed his rhetoric a little bit to say that but of course when people come into this country and they're not their application is unmerited they will be swiftly removed now his rhetoric has changed but i'm not entirely sure uh, and of course nobody asked him um this obviously hasn't been the case up to now because we've had five thousand people arrive here with no passports they haven't been removed they have been admitted to the asylum system so if he is now saying that if you come here and your application lacks merit you will be removed then one of two things must be true he must either have been he must either be spoofing today because the law doesn't allow him to do that or he mm. must have been spoofing for months and months and months when he was saying the law doesn't allow me to do that because he's made no proposals to change the law he's he's introduced no legislation he hasn't said i'm going to go to the european union and address this issue he just simply said oh no this is going to happen moving forward um with no proposals to do it so i mean i i find it very difficult to take him there is seriously. there is something shifting though um kind of beneath the surface um from a government point of view um like earlier during the week um there was reports of this uh, paper that's been prepared for the cabinet 
to show how other countries are dealing with these issues. And uh, one of the things that this um, study came back and revealed to the government, I'm trying to get a hold of it, by the way, I've asked the Department of the Taoiseach, can you give it to me? So they haven't responded yet. Maybe it's a private document, but why should it be? Why shouldn't we be told how other EU countries are handling the same issue? But one of the things um, that this document revealed to the government is that other countries have time limits on the amount um, of, of accommodation you can expect from the state. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, the state says, well, okay, there's other people who want to use that accommodation, so you've got plenty of time to find accommodation, or not as the case may be. Um, now, there's arguments for or against that policy, but it was interesting to me that apparently most EU countries don't have our unlimited um, accommodation offer, which is causing so many problems. Um, so, but, but the fact that the government is now commissioning documents like that means... It is finally slowly beginning to face up that we really have got a problem here, that the electorate are beginning to, um, it's beginning to dawn on the electorate what's going on, that there are questions they can't suppress anymore, they can't keep shouting at the top of their lungs far right anymore, when you have people like Michael McDool um, coming out and saying the things he's saying and pointing out about the 5,000 that are all coming in here illegally and other countries are much more, are much tougher about this kind of thing than we are because they're all coming in clearly illegally. Um, um, well, then the government can stay in the level of denialism or condemnation of anybody with a legitimate question that been trying to get away with to date. And it's interesting as well, it's not just the likes of Grift asking these questions anymore, it's the like of likes of news talking, the Pat Kenny show. Mm -hmm. And when it's the likes of the Pat Kenny show, I said this before on the show, the likes of the Pat Kenny show is getting involved. Then the, the dam is starting to burst. And actually, pe people like Pat Kenny are doing the country and the government a favour because if they're beginning to ask the legitimate questions, they're not leaving the bootleggers to be the only ones to ask them, which is to say the far right, to use that term, all right, that is beginning to legitimise legitimate questions, which is really, really important. And if the government is now beginning to look at this and think, well, okay, what are we doing? And are we being taken advantage of? Definitely, there's something shifting. Well, it's remarkable that it's taken them this long. But uh, funny you should say that about there being a shift because Fine Gael TD uh, rang me up this week to talk about the Kitty Holland story that some people who who follow my Twitter feed, follow Grift, might have seen. And by the way, I'm not going to say anything about that on this podcast. I said everything I want to say about it in, in a couple of pieces published this week and, uh, and indeed online. But he was ringing me up to talk about that, but I was talking to him in general about the immigration issue. And he said it's all they're getting on the doors. Well, not all they're getting on the doors, but it's it's what they're getting on the doors along with health, housing, and in some areas, crime. But immigration is, is has gone to the top of the list. It's the thing people are, are, are giving them stick about on the doors now. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I saw a clip. I don't watch RTE ever. I think you watched, David. But I saw a clip mm. of the, the new RTE show up front. Um, mm. Earlier on this week, when, when I, several people who did watch it told me the audience were were um, sounding dangerously far right in some respect. One one chap apparently act, apparently said that the far right had been proven correct, and for this this um, this uh, instance of upfrontness, Katie Hannon moved the moved the discussion swiftly along. But it's um, it's very telling. I think there there has been a palpable mood shift, and and I obviously see it yeah. in our analytics and and people what people are saying in response to our stories and so on. But it's um it's it, it's definitely there, and I think they should be worried. Well, I saw um the first half of that show upfront. So upfront is um the replacement for the old Claire Byrne show on a Monday night. So Katie Hannon is presenting, and it's a bit like the old questions and answers, a bit of a revamp of it. Um, so you got the audience and they ask questions, and you got the panel, and the panel the other night consisted of, because I was interested to see how the whole thing would be handled. Um, now, audiences, of course, are not necessarily at all representative, representative of the general public. It's people with a particular interest in the issues under discussion that night, so that always has to be kept in mind. But anyway, the panel was Michael McDool, um, Jennifer Carroll McNeil of Fine Gael, who's now a junior minister, uh, Matt Carthy of um, Sinn Féin, and um, a Syrian lady, um, who has refugee status here. So three of the four panellists still um, took the kind of uh, nothing to see here, folks. Um, or if you do think there's something to see here, there's something wrong with you. They were still taking that approach. Um, the Sinn Féin approach was kind of typical, having it both ways. They weren't going to condemn any of the protesters because a lot of them are probably their own supporters, like in East Wall and so on. <laughs> they, so all they the blame is the government. 
Yeah. Sorry, to say they absolutely are because we've had people down interviewing the protesters, mm. which, which other media outlets refuse to do because you can't talk to the hated far right. It's funny mm. when you go down with the microphone, you put it in people's faces, and you expect to meet a member of the hated far right. Oftentimes they'll tell you, "Oh, I voted for Desi Ellis. I voted for Mary Lou." You know, the, the, it's the Sinn Fein base. A lot of these people, and they're outraged. No, yeah, uh, totally. And that's why Sinn Fein are kind of trying to face both ways on this issue. So they're not going to condemn protesters who are, I say, disproportionately their supporters, uh, which, as you say, hasn't been admitted, but they are. Mm. Um, and then on the other hand, we want to blame the government. So the government hasn't built enough of everything and the government can somehow magically build enough of everything to satisfy all the demands for asylum in the country from here until the far horizon, which is obviously impossible. Um, and sooner or later, Sinn Féin are going to cop on. They're going to find some language that actually begins to address voter concerns properly. And they're probably going to start moving further ahead in the polls when that day does dawn. Yeah. Now, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, who's kind of like peaked Fine Gael, um, she's Dublin South Side, very articulate, um, uh, very urban. Um, and I'm just not sure that that kind of peak finagaleness is the way to be connecting with the average voter sitting at home with legitimate questions in their well, head about well, the question. Well, I, I have to say, although I, I agree with her on almost nothing, I find her a very impressive media performer, and I'm not surprised oh, she's being pushed out. But, um, but, but yeah, not on this issue, I think. Anyway, you see, Sai John, what struck me watching her was, you know, she was highly articulate about the whole thing and about government policy, but it also seemed to me there was a huge disconnect between what she was saying and um, what many members of the audience, uh, both in the studio and probably at home, are feeling about the issue, because um, there's still a lot of disingenuousness about the issue and a pretense that there's not really an issue to be seen here. Um, the um, So Michael McDool, in a kind of quiet, understated way, was the only person to be at all realistic about this and pointing out all the people who come in without documents. Um, so... Uh, you know, somebody is cheating the system and the government won't stand up for itself and it won't stand up for, um, actually, he didn't say this, but the genuine asylum seekers, because obviously there's a whole bunch of fake asylum seekers coming in. They're also in the queue with the genuine asylum seekers. And the genuine asylum seekers are having to wait longer to get their claims processed, mm -hmm. which are legitimate, unlike the 5,000 plus who are not legitimate. Yes. Absolutely. And that 5,000 plus is just those who, who, who destroyed their passports. There may be well mm -hmm. others who are in the system um, having not destroyed their passports, who, who ultimately will be rejected, because I think it's important to remember Ireland has the lowest rejection rate in, in European Union, and in countries like Austria, for example, the rejection rate is sometimes 50%. Uh, oh, France or, is 75%. Or France is 75%. And by the way, the EU Home Affairs Commissioner, she has said that um, the big majority of people coming into Europe to claim asylum are really economic migrants in disguise. Now, they're going to call her far right. Uh, so, um, the Irish government and the Irish political system and the Irish media are going to have to get over the denialism about this. And and, and the left, by the way, um, are so seriously out of touch with their own base, it's just unbelievable. So Sinn Féin, having it both ways, but other parts of the left, the likes of the Social Democrats and Labour, absolutely out of touch. So this is why they've shrunk down to essentially a middle-class urban base. This is what was happening with the likes of the Social Democrats in both Sweden and Denmark. And one day they cottoned on, we can't keep condemning our own supporters our working class supporters, the reason we were built in the first place as a whole bunch, you know, a basket of deplorables. We can't keep doing this. We've got to actually see are some of their concerns legitimate and then one day it dawned on them, they are legitimate. Yeah, so we've yeah. got to address them. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the big issue that they all have here is that essentially the entire, if you want to call it establishment case in immigration, relies on believing that a magic trick can be performed. Because on the one hand, you've got the left saying, uh, the problem is the government's disaster on housing. That's their that's mm. their go to explanation on this. You know that that this is terrible, but it's no excuse for racism. People coming here must be welcomed. And of course, it is no excuse for racism. But of course, like the legitimate sorry, no, concerns are well, legitimate concerns. Yeah, no, nothing is an excuse for racism. I'm I'm simply I'm I'm repeating what they say. I'm not saying mm. I'm not saying that's what ha yeah. what's, what's happening is racism because I don't believe that. Mm. So just for clarity, but that's that's the general formulation that they use. And on the other hand, their solution appears to be that people can keep coming as, as often as possible. And as soon as the left takes power, there will magically be 200,000 extra units of housing in the country. Uh, and all problems will be gone. It'll be sorted. Just put, put um, you know, Ivana Bacic in the Ministry for Housing and it'll be done. We'll have a land of milk and honey. All these houses will appear overnight. It is reliant on a magic trick because ultimately the problem with this situation is that the sums don't work. We have 
uh, 80,000 people came in last year. On top of a housing crisis, we don't have uh, it's not that we don't have space for these people because we've got plenty of fields. Mm-hmm. We don't have roofs to put over their head. Um, and and in the search for roofs to put over people's heads, I mean, we're now resorting to army barracks. There's this magical thinking about building tons and tons of modular homes. There's, um, But there is no permanent solution to this problem. And it is a permanent problem. And in relation, to example, to, the, to our Ukrainian guests, who we know are genuine refugees, we know there's a war there, They've been told, for example, that they can stay forever even after the war is over. That is the that is the official position of the government as articulated. And if you're time. a Ukrainian refugee, I mean, it would make sense for you to go from an EU country that's not saying we're going to open up a pathway to citizenship to Ireland, which says, well, we will, because then that, of course, gives them a passport to every other EU country. So why wouldn't they come here? That's what I would do. Absolutely. So, so there's, um, there's, 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 there's huge, enormous problems that just can't be. And, and the thing is, we're not telling the listeners anything they don't know because this is basic stuff, and most people can see it. And the only people who can't see it fall into two categories: those running the country and those reporting on the people running the country, by and large, because the media on this issue, I think, have gone feral. Uh, and feral is the only word for it. Now, I, I said I wasn't going to discuss the Kitty Holland situation, and I'm not. But, I mean, if you look at the general tone of the coverage um, of these protests, you would think the country was under siege from a horde of barbarians, as opposed to what is the reality on the In the far right. Yes, the inverted commas far right. And but by the way, mm. you, I, am the fir- I would be the first person to say that there is, um, there are those who are extremists who are trying to take mm. advantage of these protests and piggyback off them. That happens all the time. There's a reason people before profit had their banners on the water charge protests. They went there. The people there were not people before profit supporters. If they were, people before profit would have many more votes. But they went there with their with their banners and their microphones, and they went up the front of the crowd and so on. This happens every time. There was an individual arrested this week for inciting hatred. I think the Guardi did, uh, under, by the way, the existing legislation, not the new the new legislation. I have, I, 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 nothing I've seen suggests to me that the Guardi made an error in that case. But mm. the focus on these small number of, of, of individuals who are, of course, trying to make themselves the stars of the show is being used to detract from the mothers and the kids and the grannies and the ordinary people there who are saying our communities can't bear this. We can't we can't cope with it. Our schools can't cope with it. We had a story in, in Limerick this week where there are um, 30 or more kids in, in that city, um, which is not far from where I live, who can't actually get a secondary school place because there are too many people in the city for the schools. Um, there, there are real legitimate issues. I and mean, we talked to Alan Hines was on the show last week talking about uh, how some schools oh. struggle to cope with translation. Of the Catholic, yeah, of the, of, the, of the Catholic Education Partnership. Yep. Um, so, so I mean, the, the, the concerns here are legitimate, obvious, and mathematical. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, sorry, go on. The numbers into the resources do not go. That is the core problem, and 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 the and in the absence of the ability to increase the resources dramatically, which we don't have, the only thing you can do is reduce the numbers. That that that, By is, the way, that is the only way to make that equation work. So, even if we were building one hundred thousand houses and apartments per year, and you could accommodate everybody coming in um, at any one time, um, you'd still be entitled to ask: Are these people coming here legally? Um, so even if the accommodation problem was solved, you've still got, well, hang on, if a whole bunch of people come in here illegally, and that's not right, um, and you'd still be entitled to ask that question. And the second thing you'd be entitled to ask, okay, you have these big numbers coming in, are they being properly integrated, or are we creating problems down the line? Again, even if the accommodation problem was solved. But looking at this news talk piece, about again, about um, the 5,000 coming in here with uh, fake or um, no documents, um, so the reporter speaks to one of the asylum seekers, and the asylum seeker says, after corona, everything has changed, you know? When, with, when corona gone, this is uh, the way he's putting it, the people start hearing about Ireland, that is the asylum seekers, that in Ireland they give people the asylum, the papers, and they give them the work permit, everybody coming to Ireland, that is the problem. And then the reporter asks, are people coming here because they know they will get their papers more easily? The asylum seeker says, this is the reason, this is the only reason, trust me. Okay, so we're a soft touch, and they know we're a soft touch, and again, if you're an asylum seeker, 
and you're really an economic migrant in disguise or a genuine asylum seeker, you are going to come to the country that makes it easiest. It, and it, the only thing stopping an awful lot more coming is we're on the edge of Europe. The uh, Another thing which should be mentioned here before we move on, because we should move on, um, but I just want to mention it because, you know, he says people became aware of Ireland having this position. It should not be forgotten that last year, Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister for Housing and Children and a hundred other things that he doesn't really do much on, um, sent out tweets in, I think, certainly over 20 different languages advertising to people overseas that if they came to Ireland as asylum seekers, they would be guaranteed own door accommodation within three months. That was, mm. to my mind, um, I don't know how it is not a, a, an immense scandal, because it is an invitation to fraud. You are mm. telling people to come here to seek asylum because conditions are here are better here than they are elsewhere. It's a complete breach of the spirit of all our European obligations as well, because you're essentially saying we're better than all our our European colleagues come to us instead. And then and then then they're saying, oh, you know, Ireland has been uniquely hit. Roderick O'Gorman, um, in my honest opinion should be fired from cabinet for that and that alone, uh, let alone any of his um, further um, issues or, 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 or scandals. But anyway, um, that's just so before I be, I be, I be, so be, just before we finish the item, like there's another. Uh, so there was this immigration lawyer giving an explanation as to, as to why they arrive without documents. So what he's saying is an, an asylum seeker and a trafficker, or maybe a few asylum seekers and the trafficker get on the plane. Uh, to Ireland, so they've got on, say, France, so they have the documents, um, and, and and they could be fake documents, but they're good enough to persuade the French authorities to let the person on the plane or the, or the group on the plane, and then on the plane, the trafficker will say, okay, give me back those documents, because they're good and I'm going to use them again, all right, and then they get off the plane in Ireland, and again, if you're the person who's been trafficked, you think, great, and you and I would do that. But then they get here and of course they're waved on through. And so the traffickers themselves are saying Ireland is the place to go to. Um, not these other countries like Denmark because they're not such a soft touch. Um, so the from a from a trafficker and an asylum seeker point of view, what they're doing is completely rational. The irrationality is at this end because we won't we're not honest about it. So we become dishonest and irrational in the way that the authorities address the issue. Yes. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I look, there's nothing more to be said on this. I, I, I think, I think we, we, we battered it to death, but we'll probably be talking about it again next week because it is, is one of the most extraordinary stories of my lifetime, the government's reaction to this issue. Mm. Anyway, um, it was St. Bridget's Day yesterday, David. Um, and I read in the Irish Times this morning that, St. Bridget's Day is uh, that the, the festival over the weekend will be a celebration not of St. Bridget, but of an entirely separate entity, the pagan um, pre-Christian Irish goddess Reed. Um, yeah. uh, there seems to have been a little bit of confusion over who the feast day actually represents. And in this week of St. Bridget's Day, which is a full six weeks before the thing is due to happen, we also had the launch of the St. Patrick's Day Festival which was one of the most extraordinary photographs I've ever seen. If viewers didn't see it, I have a piece on Grip, but you'll also find it, most, just search Twitter for St. Patrick's Day, you'll probably find it, um, where you had the minister, another green minister, it's, it's amazing how often these things surround green ministers, um, standing there in the middle of a group of people that included two drag queens, um, various people dressed in the national colours of what appears to me to be Colombia, um, and a whole range of other people wearing devil horns and various costumes. And the, the fact that the minister was wearing green was about the only thing recognizably Irish in it. And what surprised me about it, because I'm so bored of this crap now that I, I basically rolled my eyes, but I was surprised that there was a big online reaction to it. And not only online, I heard mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about it in the real world, that this was just this was really grating on people that that there was there was basically no Irishness in the St Patrick's Day launch. That it was a festival of something entirely different. What do you make of it? Are you like me? Do you just roll your eyes at this stage? Or are you battered down by it? Or well, I mean, yeah, I saw the photograph as well. And um, so what's kind of happened is uh, we decided that, uh, essentially a diversity, inclusion, and equality committee (DIE) die has taken charge of the St. Patrick's Day Parade, like they're taking charge of basically everything. And their overriding goal is to make everything, quote-unquote, multicultural and diverse. All right. So you have something like St. Patrick's Day, 
and that used to be about Christianity and Irishness. And so they've erased the Christianity, so far as I can see, completely. Um, St. Patrick has been reduced to a Santa Claus type of figure. All right, so there's the guy there, and he's in his green, and he's got a bishop's hat on, and he's got his crozier, but he's kind of uh, a figure of fun and, to a certain extent, mockery, um, uh, probably worse than Santa Claus, who, of course, is St. Nicholas. Um, so that's what Christianity has been reduced, and you couldn't really call it Christianity at all. So it's been basically erased. It's been cancelled. Um, it's kind of cancelled culture, right? And it's been off quite some time when it comes to the St. Patrick's Day parade. Uh, but then the second thing is we're beginning to cancel the Irishness out. But it's kind of an extraordinary thing. So all around the world, they celebrate St. Patrick's Day, and they don't make it look like Mardi Gras, right? Because no. Mardi Gras is Mardi Gras. So why would you make St. Patrick's Day look like Mardi Gras? So it's a weird thing to do. Like if you went out to Rio de Janeiro and you're attending Mardi Gras, you don't want it to look like St. Patrick's Day. That'd be just a weird thing to do. You want it to be full-on Brazilian. Okay, and it'd be a Brazilian festival and a Brazilian celebration because that's why you paid the money to go. And if you turn up in um, uh, New York and you're on Fifth Avenue and the parade is going by, you don't want it to look like uh, Columbus Day. Mm -hmm. All right. Or somebody else's national day. You want it to look like Ireland's national day. Uh, but you come to Ireland. And it doesn't look like Ireland's National Day at all. I mean, there's bits and pieces in there, so you're still going to have traditional Irish music and what have you, and people wearing green. But increasingly, they've just said, no, 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 this is a multicultural celebration, uh, so this is the way we're going to do it, because this is the new Ireland. The new Ireland is kind of, you know, um, diverse, so we've got to reflect that in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. So we erase our own St. Patrick's Day Parade, whereas everybody else says we're going to make it as Irish as we possibly can, and we're going to probably make a stage Irish, and we're going to overdo the green and all the rest of it, but not us. Uh, I was I, passing by, sorry, just finally, I was passing by Leinster House yesterday, it was on the Merriam Square side of it. There was two huge flags outside on the grounds. One was the Ukrainian flag, and the other was the EU flag, and there was no tricolor. And I thought that was really strange. Strange is an interesting word. I, mean, I think a lot of people are feeling that way. Uh, and you see it a lot online. You see people reaching for explanations that, in my view, go beyond the rational involving World Economic Forum and all this kind of mm. stuff. But I kind of understand it. I understand why people feel that way. Um, you know, I, like, I don't remember the last time I was in Dublin and I didn't see an LGBT rainbow flag flying from at least one lamppost. I remember when Pride Pride Week was Pride Week. When I was just 20 years ago, I was in the, an officer in the Union of Students in Ireland. There was immense planning went into Pride Week. Uh, rightly so. It's a, it's an important week to to recognize people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, whatever, um, and to and to put out an important message that they shouldn't be discriminated against. But somewhere along the line, that became Pride Month, and then Pride Year, and then Pride Decade, and it's it's never ending. And it's not just about um, about that group, uh, important as they are. It's about the fact to me that ninety percent of the people or more in this country um, are straight, Irish, uh, probably come from a traditional family background, aren't that interesting, probably, you know, uh, you could describe them as normal, sort of boring people, and they don't get a look in. I looked at that photograph, I didn't see a fisherman, I didn't see a farmer, I didn't see a builder, I didn't, see, I didn't even see a Garda, I didn't see a nurse, I didn't see any of the people who make this country work on a day-to-day -day basis, some of whom, by the way, are, of course, LGBT and all the rest of it. But it's just that this constant elevation of a very small minority of, of, of people. Um, we, we decided at some point we were going to celebrate minorities and then we decided we were going to celebrate nothing except minorities. And I understand why people are upset by it. Um, I but completely yeah. understand that. You see, multiculturalism at a certain point becomes anything but your own culturalism. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, Christmas every year, there's a bit of a debate about whether Christmas has been cancelled and you say happy holidays and what have you instead and uh, you don't see cribs anymore and then there was the whole thing about the crib outside uh, the mansion house and uh, the live animal crib and was shifted off to um, uh, Stephen's Green. Uh, so there's a fuss about that and uh, so is the whole um, cancelled Christmas thing exaggerated and it probably is a little bit but you see what they're kind of doing what with Christmas, though, is about it's a bit like what they're doing with St. Patrick's Day. Um, they are reducing the essential element of it so much that it simply becomes a supporting role on the day itself. And it's the same as the debate about the display of Christian symbols in schools. Uh, so, yeah, you can have your Christian symbol on the wall, but you've got to put up every other symbol as well. And so the cross or the crucifix or whatever gets gets kind of lost amidst all the other symbols and then you begin to think well okay 
uh, we're a post-Christian country, but are we, to some extent, but are we even a, allowed to be a Christian heritage country? And some years back, there was a case in Italy, um, a lady from Finland called uh, Mrs. Lautzi uh, took a case against Italy because in state classes, now not church-run schools, in state-run schools, uh, the crucifix appears on the wall. And she said that discriminates against my child because I'm an atheist and I'm raising my child the same way. So my child has to go in and be indoctrinated by this cross every day. And she took her case to the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights initially found in her favour. And there was uproar around Europe. And countries as varied as Greece and Norway said, hang on, this is going too far. So they appealed it. And in the end, anyway, the European Court of Human Rights said, no, the cross can remain on the wall because uh, it's simply a symbol of Italian heritage and it is not indoctrinating anybody. But we in Ireland have decided putting a cross on the wall, if you don't have all the other symbols of all the other children on the wall as well, you are indoctrinating them. So you've got to kind of pretend you're not a Christian heritage country. And in Italy, even the left was up in arms because they said you're trying to erase our culture. So there's a pushback in some of these countries against this kind of excessiveness and um, the kind of diversity to the point where you've got to deny who, who you actually are and deny your own history. And I think if I was going into, if I was going to India and I was going to live in India, there's absolutely no way I'd want them to hide the fact that they're a Hindu heritage and still a Hindu country. Um, it'd be just a ridiculous thing for me to expect to do. And when I was in Jordan some years ago, um, on the, just before... Um, the news was kind of like the answer for Ramadan uh, they sounded something to say we're now at dusk so you can end your fast for the day why would I object to that being in a Muslim majority country and it would be kind of obnoxious for somebody like me who's let's say moved to Jordan for the sake of the argument to say you can't uh, announce on your national um, television station that fasting for the day has come to an end it would be an absurd thing to do because mm -hmm. you'd be erasing that country's heritage. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I, I, everything I say you said there, I, I I agree with. But I mean, for me, I I just think that this is you said the Italians are opposed to it and all the rest of it. They are. I mean, the dominating and animating spirit in Ireland today um, of the people who make the decisions and govern the country and report on the country and all the rest of it, as I said, is anti-Catholicism. That's what it is. That is the core the core value that many of these people share. Now, I am not a practicing Catholic. I'm not a mass goer or all the rest of it, but I find it so deeply offensive that um, these people then are also the people who are organizing, planning, and essentially tarnishing what was, when I was growing up, a day that was religious and cultural and it was about being Irish. And in many ways, it was about celebrating um, all that the people of Ireland came through in in the name of their faith, um, you know the 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 penal laws and, and all of that kind of stuff. St Patrick's Day was a way to recognise a sort of historic national triumph and emergence from darkness into light, and to give thanks. And that is all gone. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, who is a practicing Catholic, indeed he very much a practicing Catholic, um, has a, a great video on YouTube that he recorded last year. Um, called Give Us Back St. Patrick's Day. I would strongly recommend people go and look it up because well, um, he, he, he makes a very powerful case. And by the way, we should have him on the show. Sure. Um, so St. Patrick's Day um, over goes the Taoiseach to Washington mm -hmm. and he presents the bowl of shamrock to whoever happens to be the US president. And then there's a, a lunch up on Capitol Hill. And the whole day is about as Irish as could be. I mean, as quiet man kind of Irish. Um, every stereotype is played up to. So the Americans, and that's obviously a very multi-ethnic melting pot country, um, they think part of the kind of melting pot over there is, okay, the Italians, you have your national day here, and you Irish have your national day, and all kinds of other groups here have their national day, and we want it to be stereotypical. And we don't want the Irish to come over here and don't give a boat of shamrock anymore. I don't know what they would give instead that is the, is the symbol of multiculturalism. They don't want to do that. They want it to be green, shamrocks, St. Patrick's, as Irish as could be. That's what they want. And in the end, we won't even become recognizable to tourists anymore or to ourselves as we, if we continue to do this, uh, because it is a denial of our own identity. Um, and so with St. Bridget, we're going to turn her into a pagan goddess, and we're going to turn St. Patrick into this figure of fun like uh, Santa Claus, and it's 
a really strange thing to be doing. And as you say, a lot of it is simply motivated by anti-Catholicism. Well, well the, 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 the St. Bridget stuff in particular, I think, is this idea that, you know, we're actually celebrating a pagan goddess. That is, to me, it is, it's a form of bullying. It is, it is, it is, it is essentially a statement to the, the, the number, the people who are sort of still devout and faithful in this country, who are dwindling in number and tend to be old and tend not to have access like you or I do to the airwaves. Um, and tend to be, you know, they're people who listen to their local radio station and read their local newspapers and go to Mass on a Sunday and live ordinary, normal lives. This is a group of people in Dublin essentially saying, we're going to take your saint and we're going to turn her into a pagan go goddess who was a lesbian and committed and, and um, practiced abortions and all of these things, and there ain't a damn bloody thing you can do about it. And there is pleasure taken in that. There is undoubted mm -hmm. pleasure taken in that. There is joy taken in that act of bullying and again i want to emphasize not a practicing catholic but if i was it's desecration um and it is it is utterly horrendous because on the St. Bridget's thing, for example, it is a statement of fact that the 1st of February is St. Bridget's Day because that is her feast day as a saint in the Roman Catholic liturgical calendar. It is further true to say that she was not a pagan goddess. She's a real living human being whose skull is in the Basilica of St. Something or Other in Lisbon in Portugal. Is um, it her skull? Do um, we know? Well, it's purported it's to be hard to tell these things so it's, far. But it's, it's, it's purported to be her skull, but the point is, she was a real, documented, living human being, not a goddess. They're, 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 they are two distinct entities. It's not that the human being became the goddess, or the goddess got mixed up with the human being. There was a goddess called Breed and a saint called Bridget. They are two distinct identities, and they are being deliberately conflated in order to advance this absurd narrative that St. Bridget was a lesbian. The basis for which, by the way, the basis for that is the argument that she had a female companion who famously travelled around with her everywhere, therefore she must have been a lesbian. Now, David, if I was to say that today about some prominent Irish woman, that she travels everywhere with a female companion, therefore she must have been a lesbian, I would be denounced as a kind of homophobe. But it's okay to say it about a saint years ago. The evidence advanced for the, the, uh, the idea that she was an abortionist is a single text dated to hundreds of years after Bridget would have died, in which a tale is told where she laid the ha her hands on the stomach of a woman who was pregnant after rape and the pregnancy disappeared. Now, I'm not aware of anybody who can, who can, who can commit such a miracle today, but I would put it to our listeners that if you said to the people who are advancing this bullshit that St. Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland by waving his staff. They would laugh in your face and tell you you were believing in fairy stories. Yet when it comes to believing in a fairy story themselves or pretending to believe in a fairy story, they'll do it if it gives them the opportunity to rub people's faces in the fact that they can desecrate something precious to them and laugh about it amongst themselves. It is utterly disgusting. And there's what no other say, word for it. What they would say is something like um, Christianity in its early days, took pagan figures and it Christianized them. So we're simply reversing the process that, um, uh, as the story would go, Bridget is based on a, um, St. Bridget is based on an earlier pagan goddess. So we're going to basically scrub out St. Bridget and, and put back the pagan goddess. So this would be the kind of argument, I guess, that they would make in his favor. But you see, they've got, there's an incredibly romanticized view of kind of pre-Christian Celtic Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, that it was some kind of pagan nirvana and uh, sexually liberated and um, high status of women and all this sort of stuff, which of course is all baloney. Um, it's among other things she sacrifice uh, was practiced. Say that again, David, because um, I think your line broke up there a second. What were you saying? No, I, I was saying this kind of... Um, pre-Christian uh, nirvana, pagan nirvana that existed in Ireland, among other things, practiced human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. I, I, sorry to expand the point. I mean, we have bog bodies that have been dug up in this country from, from pre-Christian times where people had their nipples sliced off um, and had, had, had various mutilations performed upon, uh, upon them. It was, as you say, it practiced child sacrifice, human sacrifice, things that we would consider horrific today and it was christianity for and no one i would be the first to say two things first of all your point about christianity adopting pagan festivals that's absolutely true what we call christmas today was once the roman festival for example of saturnalia um, although that is a that that's a theory may i say uh which i've seen other people dispute but nonetheless there's no question that there is an overlap yeah there there there, there is an overlap is 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 about halloween 
All Hallows Eve, mm. at, you know, at mm. the Festival of the Harvest. We, we know that. But in the case of Bridget, she is a historically documented human being. This is not, this is not, you know, we took a goddess and invented her. There are contemporary writings by monks about an actual human being who traveled the country and stayed in various monasteries and indeed founded a series of um, convents in her lifetime. So, so and, uh, I, and they should, I, by the way, they should love her as a figure because here is an early um, Irish female leader. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is all tied together. It is, I don't, I, I try, if people read what I write, um, I try very rarely to use the word woke because I think it's kind of overused. But this is the definition of woke bullshit. Mm. And it's been adopted as sort of the, the new national creed, the new profession of faith by a very small section of society who revel in it precisely because they know it offends. And then these are the same people, the same bloody annoying people who turn around and say, oh, we have to take action on hate speech and offense and deliberate, you know, deliberate causing of hurt. and Go away. I mean, you're hypocrites. I'm sorry. I, sorry, I'm, I'm being more ranty now than I usually am, but but it just is so deeply, horrendously smug and offensive. And based on this idea that they're taking vengeance for years of Catholic oppression, which, by the way, didn't affect most of these people. Didn't affect Saint Patrick. Saint Patrick, by the way, is um, claimed by all the churches in Ireland. Um, I mean, for example, there's two St. Patrick's cathedrals up at Armagh, there's the Church of Ireland one and there's the Catholic one, because all would trace the origins of Christianity, more or less back to St. Patrick, although there was, there was some earlier Christian figures here as well, but he's the one who really brought Christianity to Ireland. So he's not seen as a, he's not seen by um, all the Protestant churches as a Catholic figure, per if se. You, if, you go into um, the, if you go into the hall of Dublin Castle, you will see... If you're ever there, um, and I, I recommend it, actually, it's one of the things in Dublin I think people should visit is Dublin Castle just to enjoy the history of it. But in there are the old insignia of the Order of St. Patrick, which was, of course, a royal order of um, chivalry operated by the Protestant, Anglican, British establishment. The Order of St. Patrick mm-hmm. was was recognised, St. Patrick was recognised as, as Ireland's saint, as you, as you say, by, by all faiths. Um, so you see what you're doing is... Um because of the furious anger at the Catholic Church, they're kind of erasing the whole of Christianity. And they don't really care that the other churches are collateral damage of this because their fury at the Catholic Church is so great. So for years and years and years and years, what we were told in Ireland was um, we've got to respect all denominations because of the sectarian tensions that undoubtedly existed in this country, and you still have it to a certain extent up in the north of Ireland. So we got to be particularly understanding towards the Protestant minorities, and indeed I got married in a Protestant church. Um, and now that kind of they don't really need them anymore to create the kind of so-called pluralist Ireland they want, they've reduced the Protestants to a complete afterthought, and they don't care if they get erased along with the Catholic Church, so long as the Catholic Church gets erased. Mm. Well, I think that's a good point. You're talking about um, sectarianism and, and the north of Ireland and the tensions up there. It's a good point to to move on because we don't have much time left. Uh, to talking about another issue that affects the north of Ireland, and indeed, um, or Northern Ireland. I'm going to say Northern Ireland. I keep saying the north of Ireland. It's an entity, Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, Brexit, three years on. Um, it's been an utter disaster, hasn't it, David? The Brits are barely keeping their heads above water. Uh, Fintan O'Toole wrote a piece this week. I didn't read it, but I, I, having read all his other 78 pieces on Brexit, I'm fairly sure what it said. Um, you know, it's 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 Britain sinking beneath the waves, uh, Rue Britannia. Well, they've gone back to the Stone Age, haven't they? And mm. in only three years. Um, so that what they're kind of latching onto because it came out as the third anniversary of uh, the actual execution, if I can put it that way, of Brexit took place, was uh, a new IMF. Um, growth forecast um, for various countries and they're forecasting the British economy to shrink by something like 1.6% this year and it'll be the biggest shrinkage of uh, any of the major economies. Russia apparently is going to grow by something like 0.3% this year amazingly and so the British economy by by 1.6% or something and um, it's all to do with Brexit. Um, now I'd say there isn't an economist who can really accurately say how much of it is to do with Brexit. Probably most economists would say it has something to do with Brexit, but there's all kinds of other things going on. So, so first of all, last year, the British economy was one of the fastest growing economies in the developed world. So that's overlooked. 
Um, since 2016, which is when the Brexit vote took place, the British and German economies overall have grown by about the same amount. All right, so Stone Age, well, has Germany gone back to the Stone Age? And obviously, there's nothing to do with Brexit in the case of Germany. So you see, you can pick any particular point in time and say, there you go. Okay, and you can confuse cause and effect, correlation with causation, and you can do it for political ends, which is clearly what's been done here. So there's nobody talking last year about the British economy growing relatively fast uh, compared to, we say, Germany or France. They're not going to say that because it doesn't suit the political agenda, but it does suit the political agenda, agenda to fasten on this. But there's other things going on in Britain. So apart from Brexit, um, Britain apparently is peculiarly dependent on gas and the gas and the price of gas has gone up so much. Britain, uh, apparently mortgage holders in Britain are more likely to have variable than fixed interest rates um, under mortgage. And if you've got a variable interest rate, you're much more vulnerable to the uh, interest rate increases happening at the moment. So that in, that eats into your cost of living as well. So all these kind of things are going on. When the IMF was talking about its forecast for growth this year, it didn't just, in fact, it didn't mention Brexit, as so far as I can make out, but it did mention yeah. the price of gas and it did mention the variable versus the fixed interest rates. But our media decide, and our political class decide, it's all to do with Brexit and Britain has gone back to the Stone Age and it's just crap. Well, I, you're, you're starting to meet like me now on St. Bridget, I have to say. <laughs> But um, I would I would I would agree with you in this respect. I am a, a, a euro. I don't know if euro skeptic is the right word. When you use euro skeptic, euro euro critic. Yeah, euro critic. I'm not because I'm, I, I I I genuinely believe Brexit was an economic mistake, and I note the word economic. Mm -hmm. In that, I don't think if you if you sever yourself from a free trade area, you are likely to suffer some economic mm. consequences. Now, the scale mm. of those. Who knows what they are? Who knows what they will be in the future? An awful lot of these losses are theoretical, by the way. You get economists who say, well, if Britain was still in the European Union, we project its growth would have been 3%, but its growth is only 2%. Therefore, we say Britain has lost a trillion bucks, whatever. That's how it's done, and that's reported basically as news, even though it's just somebody drawing lines on a graph and extrapolating. Um, but what I will say is I find since Brexit happened, so much of the commentary on it is inherently intellectually dishonest because these people do not care about the British economy, particularly on the outside. And those in, those in Britain who are the most adamant remainers tend to be the wealthiest, most culturally elite people who aren't particularly mm. affected by a percentage of economic growth one way or the other. And by the way, openly despise the people who are. You know, the, the moron working classes who vote for Brexit. Ha, 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 you're suffering now. Economic growth is 2% lower than we say it would have been. You know, this is about, essentially, um, this idea that Brexit was an act of cultural vandalism, that Britain cut itself off from the enlightened continent. Um, and that is particularly, I think, what drives... Um, some of the, the opposition here in Ireland. Because if you think back to the 1970s and 1980s, uh, when Ireland was, as we all know, as a repeated fact, a dark land of shadows ruled by monsters with croziers, Britain was to these people the enlightened neighbour, the place where you could go for an abortion, the place where you could live openly unmarried, the place where all these... It was, it was a bastion of what we wanted to be. Like America. And, yeah, and for, a, and for a lot of people of a certain generation, of a certain political disposition, Britain has um, rejected them. It has turned its back on their vision of what Britain is, you know, this, this open, enlightened society that's better than us. And now we're better than them because we're open and enlightened and they're backwards and we're never going to shut up about it. But you see, by the same that, token, say, so go on. And, and that, that's, that's what's driving it. It's not... The, the talk about economics, it's cultural snobbery. That that is what drives most of the of the commentary, both within Britain at a high at, at, at sort of a high level, sort of AC grailing level of Brexit dementia, and what drives a lot of the Brexit dementia in the Irish chattering classes as well. It is cultural snobbery, and it is fear. It is fear because what they saw in the U in the UK was essentially the working classes up upend on a single day the long-held and long, deeply cultivated creation of the elite. 
for want of a better term. That's simplistic, but that's what it was. And they they fear it. They fear desperately that something like that might happen in Ireland, which is one of the reasons when after that Brexit referendum, we had all this panic about fake news and social media should be regulated mm. and we can't have we can't have what happened in Brexit happened here. And it's one of the reasons that, as I said earlier in the podcast, the media have gone feral on this immigration thing is because they see the same thing happening. They see essentially um, Eastwall, Finglas, Cabra, Drimna, working class communities rebelling against what their betters are telling them is right for them. And it's that same kind of feral loathing and panic that you saw and see in the reaction to Brexit. Um, I was, so, yes, I go on. No, that's that's my point. Yeah, I was I was on the bus yesterday going home and I was um, we were passing by Connolly Station and uh, this is maybe six o'clock or something. And there was a big delay. Bus wasn't moving at all. So I figured, okay, there must be an East Wall protest going on. And after a while, the protest went by the bus and uh, hundreds went by. And I'm looking out, and these aren't all kind of young fellas who kind of look like stereotypical National Party supporters or something. Um, it was families, um, and it was lots of women um, in, the, in the march as well. And the, and, the, uh, and the East Wall says no banners. And so you're looking down on this, and you just think something is stirring. Um, and by the way, the people on the bus kind of took it all in good part. There was one fellow and he had the two fingers raised constantly at the bus window uh, to them as they went by. I don't know who would have spotted them. Maybe somebody did. But it was a young fellow behind me and he was having a chat with his companion. And he was saying, I know where they're coming from. And this guy, you know, sounded to me like a middle class guy and um, he wasn't condemning them. So it's just interesting to pick up these sort of reactions. I mean, it's only anecdotal, but here we are on the bus and the people are not, except for that one guy and not all there shaking their fists at them by any means. And the guy said, the guy behind me saying, I kind of understand where they're coming from. And so this is why the politicians are seriously going to need to cop on. And that's why I think, by the way, again, this comes full circle. People like Pat Kenny and Michael McDool are doing the political establishment a huge favor. Um, because you know, major figures like them um, legitimizing legitimate questions gives parties like the National Party nowhere to go. All right, because if major figures like Kenny and McDool were not addressing these things, then they say, "Well, you give us no choice but to go to the National Party." So they are beginning to give people the choice, and I think they will. I think people like Kenny and McDool will begin to respectabilize and widen out the debate to some other politicians and maybe some other media who will begin to say, "Okay." we have an issue here and we need really to start talking about it. Well, on, on, on that note, David, if you haven't written your column for this week, I have it for you. It's been the day I saw the far right in the wild by David Quinn. You'll be on every RTE show. <laughs> anyway. Well, I don't know. I don't know. RTE <laughs> cancelled me some years back. I'm kidding. That might be a bit too edgy. But anyway, mm. folks, we will leave it there. We've chatted to you. I hope you found the conversation engaging. I certainly have. I got a little bit annoyed there in the middle, but I hope you can understand why. Um, we will be back next week. It probably won't just be the two of us. We'll have someone along to chat. But for now, as ever, that was the week that really was. <laughs>